Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we know that the love of Christ dwells in us. We know that we no longer have to live for ourselves, but we can be constrained by Jesus' love that is, that is capable of breaking through any difficulty, any angst, any, any, any chain that, that holds us back relationally. The love of Christ, because we know that because Jesus died for our sins and didn't live for himself, that same power lives in us to deny ourselves and to live for others unconditionally and unequivocally. Thank you for this love. May it control and constrain us as we build our lives around your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen? Amen. Please be seated. Great to have you here this morning. We Today's a special morning because we have a gentleman who has been affiliated with Adventure for probably 10 years, and he is... He he's he embodies everything it takes to start a church. You know, this month we're celebrating 15 years oh, very well here in Natomas. And you know, thanks. And you know very well, if you've been around, what it takes to start a church. It takes passionate service to help serve in variety who will give over and above their regular time to help serve in variety of areas in children's ministry. And we thank God for our children's ministry workers that are working right now. And in student ministry, and we thank God for our student ministry workers that are working, and some that are here right now serving right along the students. And for those that keep our campus safe, our shepherds ministry, who are out and about taking care of us. And for those who make the coffee, thank... But this guest services, they need a few more, by the way, if you want to serve, let us know on your Connect card. But this guy that's going to speak today served our uh, one of our churches in Fairfield, for I think it was eight plus years, or no, more than that, and his volunteer capacity was overseeing small groups, and he developed at his church, it was simultaneously small groups. Can you imagine? 70 as a volunteer. He was simultaneously in active duty for the United States Air Force. He is a, he's currently dueling plane, and for, uh, he flies the KC-10, which is that big fueling plane, and he is spending most of his time uh, when he's not over uh, over Iraq or Afghanistan. He spends most of his time of some of the most influential leaders in the central and western states. We even got into Texas. We weren't there long, don't worry. But it, we got to be around some incredible leaders because this guy's made it possible for me. He has a personal relationship to this church because he's helped coach us and the chairman of our elders, Chris Jackson, was his roommate at the Air Force Academy. Would you please welcome a servant in our area, Sean Morgan. Wow. 60 minutes or so. <laughs> I'm like, who is that guy? Wow. I, you know, I'm sitting here. Worship was great. Brian, did Brian step out? Brian and the worship team. Can we have another hand? They're all gone, but it makes me feel good to walk up here with more applause, so that's awesome. Brian says he's going to get you out of your comfort zone by making you raise your hand, and I'm sitting there on the front row thinking, I've got to talk about money for 30 minutes. You think you can be out of your comfort zone raising your hands? My goodness. So, all right. 
Today, we're going to tackle a topic as part of the generosity series that Adventure is going through, and we're going to talk about how should rich people live. It's an interesting, interesting topic. I mean, in some ways, I feel underqualified to be giving a talk on this topic. You might feel underqualified to listen to a talk on this topic, but I'll tell you what, we're going to debunk that myth. I want to pause for a second and say, I love this church. I have privilege to work in the local church as a volunteer, to do that full-time in a capacity in a local church. It was a church plant as well, very similar to this. And I have contact with thousands of pastors across the United States. I love adventure. I love your pastor. One of the things I love about a church plant is there's no baggage of history or establishment. You literally show up and it's, you know, the establishment is your wife and your kids in the back of the station wagon. That's it. It's all about the community. It's all about your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, and investing in relationships so that they can meet Jesus and become like him. And that embodies Adventure Christian Church. So it's a privilege to be up here. And uh, like Scott said, we've been connected for a while, primarily through uh, Chris Jackson, initially. I want to start off this morning with a little bit about my own personal story. And I'll tell you, when I describe my story, the thing that I want to capture the most is a season in my ministry where I really wrestled with God. And I want to explain to you the concept of what I was wrestling with God in. And I know it will resonate because I had about five people after the last service come up and tell me their story of some things. And uh, even just last week, um, something that happened to somebody. But the issue for me, my wrestling with God, you guys know there's a Bible story with Jacob and he wrestles with God for a night. Uh, and he walked around with a limp the rest of his life. And I use that metaphor, like I, I got a limp. Um, now, I'm a slow learner. It took me about a year to wrestle with God. Jacob did it in a night. It took me about a year. But it was all around the concept of being in control of my future, being in control of my future. It was my professional future. God, I want your blessing, but I've got my plan for the corporate ladder. It was being in control of my assets and my wealth because it meant security, this white-knuckle control. Now, here's what's odd. As I began to inch forward and trust God in some ways and release that white-knuckle control, I actually thought I was taking risks. Imagine this, right? I'm trusting the infinite God of the universe who has given his son up for me. I'm trusting him, and I think it's risk, right? Isn't that, isn't that like, I, I think I got this under control. Like, any of you guys have kids? right? Teenagers, like how's that working with your teenagers, like being in control, right? Versus trusting God and his plan. So I actually thought I was taking risks, trusting the infinite God of the universe. But, and this isn't for everybody, but I was ultimately during that process called into ministry. And so part of my story in terms of trusting God was a 40% cut in pay to start working in my local church. And eight years later, I was called, instead of serving one pastor in one church, I was the executive pastor, which is like an administrative role, was 
to serve lots of different pastors in lots of different churches, and I get the privilege. Scott is one of those leaders that I get to work with and, and do coaching work with and development work with. But when that happened, I took a 100% cut in pay. I thought the 40% eight years earlier was a big risk. I took a 100% cut in pay, and God has blessed every inch of that. During this process of sort of restructuring our lives around God's plan for our future, not the things we had in front of us that we were clinging to, the conversations that we have as a family, the conversations that we've had as a couple have deepened our relationship. None of this was easy. We had to make a lot of lifestyle changes. In the midst of all this, our family has gone through some pretty intense health Issues. My wife at one point was bedridden for almost 12 months during this process. But here's the deal. I'm going to talk a little bit about some details later, but I want you guys to know there's not one decision to release control of my stuff or my plans for my stuff. There's not one decision that I made along the way to release control that I would remake. Not one would I take it back. Not a single one for decades of my life. It's been a crazy ride, and God has given us tenfold and a hundredfold blessing. I'll go into a few details in the, in the closing, but I want to sh- shift gears a little bit and talk about this. So how should rich people live? Why are we even talking about this topic? We're talking about the topic because we probably have seen some rich people, and in, in my observation, a lot of rich people don't answer this question very well. So I thought, hey, this would be a great topic to talk about. I want to use a metaphor, I want to use an example story with you guys for about a minute or two here to begin to paint the picture for what we're going to talk about today. So imagine with me that you're on a journey and you've traveled far from home, overseas, and let's even say we're, we're going to go to Europe. And we're there for a while and we're coming down to the final three days of our trip. It's been a great time and somehow we stumble into winning 50 thousand dollars. But the caveat, we can accept the $50,000, but we can take nothing home but the clothes on our backs. That's all. So three days later, nothing but the clothes on our backs go back home with us. So we get this $50,000. And now we happen to notice that, you know, we had a dingy couch in the hotel room. Um, Anybody, anybody want to buy a nice leather couch, $2,000 couch to replace their hotel room for the next three days, right? Or maybe you had Formica in the bathroom and you think, you know, we should upgrade for the next three days. We could get granite in here. It's going to look really, really good. Um, nobody wants to take, take me up on the, the offer to invest in, in their hotel room. And of course, the answer is, of course not, um, because we have the privilege of wiring this money forward. So that's the thing is we can't take stuff with us, but we can wire the money home. And so why would we spend it for three days of enjoyment when we can wire it home? So this concept that we're going to be looking at today is this concept that I'm going to describe between the dot and the line. Are we living for the dot or living for the line is the question. And that will weave throughout some of the stories and some of the scripture passages for today. Are we living for the dot or living for the line? So let's unpack this a little bit. What do the dot and the line represent? 
And the reason why I chose this metaphor is I've taught a few times on generosity, and in preparation for today, one of the things that I noticed is that every time Jesus talks about money, he connects it to eternity. Every single time. Talk about money, connect it to eternity. So as I'm looking through some things and trying to build some content for today, I thought, you know, that might be a winning formula. Jesus did it every single time. I think I might add that into my notes here. So we, we want to unpack this a little further. What does the dot represent? Well, the dot essentially represents your time here on earth. And the line represents eternity. It turns out that there's a survey, a nationwide survey in America. 97% of Americans today believe in the concept of eternity, that after life on earth, there exists human beings from this earth in some fashion beyond, the life beyond. And it's interesting, when we think about the dot, the world tells us, you can be happier if you acquire more. You can be happier if you just have this much more of that or this much more of the other. In fact, a lot of us were told in life, like, you should work really, really hard on like this 75% of the dot so that that last little 25% is really fun. Um, But Jesus, every time he talked about your stuff, your wealth, and your money here, he always connects it to the line. So the dots are life here on earth. The world tells us to accumulate The line says, put your hope in God. Invest in things that are eternal, the kingdom of God, the generosity of this life. Now, I want to pause for just one second because some of you guys are new here. Many of you don't. I actually do know a few people here, but, but many of you don't know me. And I can sense that there could be a potential for people to say, okay, I crossed the bridge to come into church. I haven't been in a long time, or maybe it's the first time. And the proverbial pastors up talking about money. So I just want to address that and say, we're talking about money, but Jesus doesn't want your money and he doesn't need your money. The book of Psalms says, the earth is the Lord and everything in it belongs to him. So we believe God owns everything already. We just get to steward it for a little tiny period. What God wants is you. What God wants is your relationship here. And I know that that is bizarre. Like the creator of the universe actually is looking for a friend, right? So we're not going to get into that. Scott will will cover that like in a month or two or something like that. But this concept that the God of the universe wants you, not your stuff, here's the pivot point. In the war for you, The battlefield takes place in your bank account, in your stuff, and in your wallet, your money. The war for you, the battlefield is taking place with your money. So we're going to talk about money, and I'm I'm happy to do that because I know a lot of Christians. I actually did a Google search. I was going to come with some statistics, sort of talk. I did a Google search, people groups and classifications of people that are considered the most generous, and then the data behind it. And so if anybody doubts, I'm not even going to go into it because I don't want to take the time, but if anybody doubts, I would say go, go for it. And tell me what you find if you Google Christians and generosity and how they size up to the rest of the world. I hope that what we talk about here today, what we share here today, and what you learn if you go do some of that research gives you a soft heart 
to the message of Jesus and how it plays out in the people's lives who call Jesus their Lord and Savior. So as we get rolling through this message, we'll click to the next slide. The top 1%. What does that mean, the top 1%? Well, it turns out if you have a combined household income of $35,000, you are in the top 1%. Think about that. Combined household income, $35,000. 99% of the world's 7.7 billion people have less than you. You're a top one percenter. Even if you qualify for welfare and in California, Section 8 housing, you make the equivalent of about $20,000 a year, and you're still in the top 5% on welfare. Still in the top 5%. Section 8 housing, you go through inspections and stuff like that. You have to have air conditioning, refrigeration. You have to have food in the pantry. You have to have heat. You have to have running water. These are things a 1,000 years ago kings and queens didn't have. So we're talking about likely the top 1%, the truth rich. So I thought, well, let's talk about like some perspective. Let's kind of, that friends and family, make a list over the last two weeks of problems that friends and family stated they had in their life to me. I thought, that would be interesting. Let's listen to what people's problems are. And the cool thing, so my daughter is like by far the smartest person in the family, my 16-year-old daughter. Just ask her. Um, So she's a great listener. So I did a dry run of my sermon yesterday, and she said, Dad, you have to put my problem on the top of your problem list. And it was funny because we had dealt with this early on in the week. So we typically don't put sandwiches in their lunch. We do soups and stuff like that. And to keep them warm, we put them in these like uh, insulated, like double wall, stainless thermoses. And the deal is, mom and dad will make your lunch in the morning before you go to school. But the day before, you have to have taken your lunchbox out of your backpack and emptied your thermos and cleaned it out. And uh, lately, apparently, that's been too much work for my teenagers to accomplish. And so in the morning, we're getting to the point where you're going to be making your own lunch if you don't fix this. And my daughter says, well, the problem is we just need more thermoses. So that's problem number one. You might be rich if your problem sounds like we don't have enough thermoses in the house. So another one, you might be rich if your problem sounds like the battery capacity, probably of anything. I wrote down battery capacity on my cell phone because that's what I heard. But probably anything. If you're talking about battery capacity, you might have a rich person's problem. Cell phone carrier network issues might be a rich person problem. How about this one? I don't think I have enough vacation time. This idea... Think about, some of you have traveled the world. Some of you have been in some impoverished places. There is no concept of being paid for work you didn't do in most of the world. The cable TV guy didn't show up in his designated window for arrival. Hmm. What about this one? Hot dog prices at the ballpark have skyrocketed. (laughs) My boss is micromanaging. Sounds like a rich person's problem. Traffic is heavy on my way to work. I might be late. And I love this one for Californians. This one's pretty good. Uh, Drought issues. Drought issues for Californians don't compute in the rest of the world. For you, it typically means turning off the timer for your sprinklers or taking a shorter shower, making sure you maybe don't use as much water pressure. For the rest of the world... It means disease, poverty, potentially death, and maybe hours on a trail 
with buckets to get clean water into their community. These are actually rich people problems. So I thought maybe, you know, as we're trying to gather perspective and come together, we might just name it and say, all together, we might say something like, I think I have a rich person's problem. So maybe one on that list, maybe you got your own, but on the count of three, let's all say, I think I have a rich person problem. Ready? One, two, three. I think I have a rich person's problem. Okay, cool. I'm glad we all agree on that. Um, So then, let's tackle that question. So how are we supposed to live? So... This concept of the dot of the line is going to be woven in and out of these stories. And I think it's important to the Christian worldview to always have the concept of the line. And let's dive into a story that Jesus taught us in Luke 16. It's the parable of the shrewd manager. Some of you guys know this one. I'm going to read it. This is, I think this is the the message version. Uh, If you like that version, I, I sort of look at different versions at different stories and kind of pick which version I like. I don't stick to them all, but Jesus said to his disciples, there was once a rich man who had a manager. The manager got reports, or sorry, the rich man got reports that the manager had been taking advantage of his position by running up huge personal expenses. So he called him in and he said, what's this I hear about you? You're fired. And I want a complete audit of your books. The manager said, what am I going to do? I've lost my job as manager. I'm not strong enough for a laboring job. And I'm much too proud to beg. I like how he was willing to admit that. That's really cool. He goes, ah, I've got a plan. Here's what I'm going to do. Then when I'm turned out into the streets, people will take me into their houses. So let's hear what he did. To his master. He said to the first one, How much do you owe my master? He replied, A hundred jugs of olive oil. And the manager said, Here, take your bill, sit down, make it 50. To the next, he said, And how much do you owe? The man answered, A hundred sacks of wheat. He said, Quickly, take your bill and write 80. So you see what's happening here, right? You see this concept. This is what he said earlier. Then, when I'm turned out into the street, people will take me into their homes. Okay? So he's using his his boss's wealth to win favor with people later. So here's what's crazy. Let's get back into the passage. This is is back into the quotable text. Now, here's the surprise. The master praised the crooked manager. What? What? I mean, it's crooked right there. It says crooked. The master praised him. Why? Because he knew how to look after himself. Streetwise people are smarter in this regard than law-abiding citizens. They are on constant alert looking for angles to survive by their wits. And then here's what Jesus says in his summary statement. I want you to be smart in the same way, but for what is right. When he's talking about wealth, he wants you to think about the line, which is another slide. He wants you to think about the line in the context of, of eternity. Now, this can be confusing. This can be confusing a little bit because there's a crooked manager here. This passage is not about, the story is not about the ethics of what the manager did. The story is about his understanding of paying things forward to the future. It's wiring the money from Europe home instead of spending it on expensive things there. 
He's not praised for being crooked. The idea here is what you have under your authority today is an opportunity to make a difference for eternity. What you have today is an opportunity to make a difference for eternity. We'll talk about some practicalities here in a little bit, but let's examine a second story. This one is from the book of Timothy. So Paul writes this letter. The Apostle Paul wrote about half of the New Testament. Uh, You guys probably have heard the names Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know, everybody knows it's like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Revelation, right? Just goes something like that. So those are the four accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Paul was friends with these guys. He hung out with these guys in in what we know now as Israel and Jerusalem area, and he was considered to be and is considered to be the greatest church planter in the history of the world. And this passage, I love this passage as we think about, if I'm rich, how should I live? Because Paul wrote this section of this letter to Timothy, and he literally says, tell the rich people this is how they should live. So I thought, well, that seems like a pretty applicable passage. So here it is. It's, uh, we'll start with verse 17, and it goes into 18 and 19 if you're following along. Um, he says, command those who are rich... In this present world. That's how he starts this passage out. Command those who are rich. So you see it, right? See, you and I, if we were talking about rich people in our lives and we were telling a story, we would just say, let me tell you about rich people. But just like Jesus connects everything, money and wealth connected to eternity, Paul says, this present world. So apparently... Paul's tipping his hand that he believes there's something else that's not the present world. It's not all the stuff in front of us that we can hold on to and put our hope into, but there's something more. That's a key part of the passage. The dot and the line are coming into view right in the first seven or eight words of this passage. So he says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. I love that part of this verse. He provides things for our enjoyment. This is not about asceticism. Richly provides with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, I'm going to talk about this last verse here for a second, verse 19. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. A little counterintuitive there, right? They already have the treasure, and they're giving it away, but he closes the verse to say they will lay up treasure. Giving it away, they already had it. That, that's where my mind goes. They already had it. But we close out with the term coming age. So in the very opening statement, he talks about the present world. He's planting the seeds for the concept of the dot and the line. And he closes out saying, coming age. You storing up by giving away, by serving others. You are storing up for eternity. You're paying it forward. It's this concept. So the verse here in verse 18, he says... Do good. Command them to do good. 
So what does that mean? What would Jesus do? WWJD, you see the bracelets and the bumper stickers and things like that. So a practical thing is doing good, but I think if you add the what would Jesus do filter in here, what that really means is doing good to those who can't or won't pay you back. The concept of the dot in the line brings us to not just doing good, but doing good for those who cannot or will not pay you back. Be generous and share. The concept here, if you have more, do more. If you have more, give more. This is what living for the line is like. So one of the key principles in Jesus' teaching here, I'm going to share you a story And I got enough head nods last hour, so I think most people know, and you guys in the front row can tell me with your head nods, do you guys know who this guy is here? John D. Rockefeller? You guys do? Okay, good. I had to, like, connect it to Rockefeller Plaza with Jimmy Fallon in New York to make sure, you know, like... So this guy happens to be one of the most wealthy Americans who have ever lived. And upon his death, the world was in anticipation of the size of his fortune. How much? How much fortune did he leave? And there's a, there's a legend or a story that somebody was able to have a conversation with his money manager. How much did John leave behind? Because the world wants to know. And privately and one-on-one said, hey, can you tell me how much did he leave behind? And his money manager said, unforgettable statement. You know what he left behind? Anybody know? All of it. See, that's the key principle in Jesus' teaching here. Between the dot and the line, you leave it all behind, okay? It's the, it's the U-Haul behind a hearse, right, concept. You leave it all behind, but you can wire it on ahead. So the question that we have to keep asking ourselves is, are we living for the dot or are we living for the line? We all know that we're a top one percenter now, some of you may say, well, I don't feel like a one percenter. So hopefully we've kind of covered some of the ground. But I would just encourage you to think about, have you ever taken anything to the goodwill? You might have a little extra. Have you ever had a garage sale? You might have a little extra. Have you ever paid $3 for coffee? You might have a little extra. If you've ever owned a car, you might have a little extra. So what do we do? As rich people who claim Jesus as our Lord and Savior, what concept, what do we do about it? So a, a couple things I would encourage you guys on the next slide is just, first of all, start out with prayer, right? This answer, you won't find a universal answer, but start out with prayer. And if you're married and you have family members, have conversations. My wife and I, we have our best conversations when we're walking. I don't know what it is if we're on the couch. It just sort of like is awkward, But when our feet start walking and there's birds chirping, like all of a sudden the conversation just starts going like the asphalt underneath our feet. And we have some of our best conversations. Some of our date nights are just an hour-long walk around the block, around the neighborhood. Um, Talk about it. Be open, not resistant about the conversation in the context of the dot and the line. And then pray. Pray a whole lot more. You guys are in a campaign here. Scott's going to talk a little bit about it. It's called, it's a mission to reach this community, and it's called Multiply Hope. It's the Multiply Hope mission. Um, And so I want that to be a part of your conversation, is what are the leaders of your church focused on for you as a church family? 
So here's a couple practical questions you can ask, and I'll, I'll talk briefly about one more thing in my personal journey, is uh, some, some practical questions. What percentage of our money do we give away to help others meet Jesus and become like him, okay? The last part of that, meet Jesus and become like him is an important factor. What percentage of our money? And are we happy with that? Does that feel like a good balance between the dot and the line in our lives? What percentage of that goes directly to a church that we believe is the greatest conduit for introducing people to Jesus and helping them become like him? And then the concept of sacrifice. Do we feel like we have sufficient sacrifice? We know that God gives us things for our enjoyment, but what sacrifices are we going to make? Giving back to God and his bride, things that cost us something, is an important biblical concept. And then I would say for me, one of the things that I would plant, seed I would plant, is go for it. I said earlier, there's not been one thing along that personal journey in my life that I have let go of and trusted God with and invested in the kingdom that I would regret. And I would say everything has been a tenfold to a hundredfold return. Now, that doesn't mean I got money back when I gave money. I'll tell you when beyond that. And sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. But I, I'll just tell you, when, when I took that 40% cut in pay and that 100% cut in pay needed sacrificial financial donations and gifts from the church. But it was at a time where we had made some lifestyle changes that there was very little margin in the paycheck each month. But most Americans, 90% of their wealth, a good portion of Americans, is, is in assets. And my wife and I made a decision that we were going to liquidate some assets in order to take part in the most significant thing that God was doing through our local church. We liquidated vacation funds, cars, and even monies that were set aside for car. Now, that's not a recipe that I'm recommending for everybody, but I think it's something to consider is my life is a testimony that when I took risks for God and trusted him fully and put myself underneath his care, my life has truly never been better. So take some of these practical steps. I hope you guys will use this metaphor of the dot and the line in your conversations to help you stay focused on God's call, living for heaven, God's call for eternity. So I'd like to close in prayer and then have Scott come back up and talk a little bit more about multiply hope and mission. Father God, I just want to pray right now. I love this church. This church has a special place in my heart in the obedience of its leaders, not just Scott and Melissa and their family, but all the leaders here and how they have served and cared for others. Lord, I want that to be richly rewarded with kingdom fruit with impacting lives, seeing lives changed, seeing your love and your hope as people choose not to live for the dot, but to live for the line. May you bless this church and may your face shine upon them. Amen.